Alright, so this evening we are going to be in Deuteronomy 23. Uh, we may we may take on the first uh, handful of verses in Deuteronomy 24. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, we haven't been at this for a few weeks, and so just as a quick reminder, uh, we are obviously in the uh, book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book uh, in the canon, the fifth book of Moses. Uh, we are with the Israelites, so it is Moses speaking uh, to Israel. Uh, this is the second generation of Israelites, uh, the first generation of Israelites having been brought out of uh, Egyptian slavery. That first generation of Israelites, except for uh, Joshua and Caleb, have now fallen in the wilderness of Sinai, in the, the Sinai Peninsula, and this second generation of Israelites is being prepared by Moses, who is at the end of his life, he's in his 120th year of life, and so he's preparing this second generation of Israelites uh, to um, go west across the Jordan River under the leadership of Moses' successor, Joshua, to uh, take the land, uh, the land of Canaan, from the Canaanites, which God had promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. So this is um, Moses' last address, as it were. It's called Deuteronomy because it is the second law. That is what Deuteronomy means. So it is a, a, a restatement of and an expansion upon the original law that was given uh, to the Israelites back in the in uh, Exodus, primarily uh, 20 through 23, as well as portions of the Holiness Code in the latter half of the book of Leviticus. And so we are in Deuteronomy, uh, and we are in the section of Deuteronomy, uh, chapters 6 through 26, that are basically uh, Moses' divine commentary on the Ten Commandments. Uh, and so uh, we have been working our way through the Ten Commandments. Last time we were together, several weeks ago, we were talking about uh, the commentary on the Seventh Commandment. And that is where we will be most of the time uh, this evening, especially if we get into Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24. Um, there's also uh, a couple of flybys in the Eighth Commandment here in Deuteronomy 23 as well. So we're going to pick up here in Deuteronomy 23. Verse 1, this is Moses speaking uh, to Israel. No one who is emasculated or who has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The sons of the third generation who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. 
Okay, so that's the first eight verses, and we'll pause there. So um, we pick up um, in in the seventh commandment, as it were. Obviously, uh, uh, some laws here are related to sexual organs and other uh, sexual practices. And then as we move into verses three through eight, um, Moses sort of riffs on that idea of who is and who is not allowed in the assembly of the Lord. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here in these verses. So, um, obviously verse one is a, is a, is a very, um, is an extremely, uh, interesting law. Um, it talks about, uh, eunuchs, uh, and so there's a lot, there's a lot of information in the commentaries on this particular verse. Um, so, the, the first thing that we should note here, and I would note it in verses 1 and 2 and in 3 and in 8. 1, 2, 3, and 8. There's a phrase, uh, the assembly of the Lord. And there's a lot of words that are written on this particular phrase because it's a relatively rare phrase uh, in the Bible. Um, it actually only, it appears uh, less than ten times uh, in the entire Old Testament, and so there is uh, a lot of uh, speculation uh, as to what this exact phrase, the assembly of the Lord, means. Now, the word assembly uh, appears many times uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, maybe your congregation uses the word, or I'm sorry, your translation uses the word congregation, perhaps. Um, but this this particular phraseology um, is extremely rare, and so sometimes uh, the commentators will say that it means uh, the entire assembly, that is, all Israel. And sometimes the commentators believe that uh, that this is limited to uh, persons of authority in the assembly, like the judges uh, that we talked about several sessions ago. Um, it's interesting, and, and I don't have a very strong opinion about it, uh, be, again, because it is used so rarely. Um, I would note, however, that one of the places that it is used is, and we don't have to go there, but if you're taking notes and you'd like to look at this, um, one of the places that this phrase, the assembly of the Lord, is used is in First Chronicles uh, chapter 28, verse 8. Uh, uh, David, actually, uh, if my memory recalls, uses this particular uh, phrase, the assembly of the Lord, and he qualifies it by saying all Israel. So in at least First Chronicles 28, verse 8, um, it is uh, referred to as all of the Israelites. So um, that there, there's... Again, there's ramifications for either uh, interpretation. So what does it mean that, that no eunuchs uh, are, are welcome uh, in the assembly of the Lord? Um, and, and, and so again, there, there's a, lo- a lot of different interpretations of what this means. Um, so a couple of things that we should think about in terms of uh, eunuchs. Um, the first thing we, sh- we could think about is the importance of circumcision. Uh, to the people Israel, right? Uh, circumcision goes all the way back, of course, to Genesis chapter 17 and the covenant of circumcision that God makes uh, with Abraham there as a very important part of uh, Israel's uh, religious rights. And as they're marking out uh, their people 
uh, down through the generations, ultimately leading up to the arrival of the Jewish Messiah. Um, And so uh, circumcision is clearly in view here. Um, It could be that the reason why uh, these eunuchs are excluded um, is because um, they're coming from other nations, other pagan nations, where the creation of eunuchs was something uh, that was performed as a religious ritual, right? And so um, the, the, the Lord is specifying here that those pagans uh, are not allowed to come in um, and be a part of the Israelite assembly because of their past uh, paganism. Uh, and they had uh, their being a eunuch as a result of a pagan ritual uh, would be evidence of their giving themselves wholeheartedly over uh, to the pagan religions, uh, which would not be welcome uh, in the assembly of Israel. Um, the other thing that we should see here is that this is a warning uh, and a deterrent. Right? So it is uh, abundantly clear from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, that in no way, shape, or form does um, uh, the, the emasculation or the creation of a eunuch, is that any way uh, a part of the Israelite worship that God has prescribed for his people here. And so again, we see, as we have seen so many times here in Deuteronomy, that these laws are put in place as a very clear deterrent for the Israelites, understanding, of course, that if anyone gives themselves to this practice, then they would be excluded from the Israelite assembly. And so this would have an extremely strong deterrent effect uh, within the assembly itself, especially for parents uh, who uh, obviously are commanded to circumcise their children, but to go no further, right? To circumcise their male sons, but do not go any further. Do not do what the pagan nations are doing around you. God has uh, uh, forbidden that here in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 23. Now, it's also interesting, as we continue uh, to talk about verse 1, um, is, is that there's this great promise. I would like you to go with me to Isaiah 56. There's this great promise that comes uh, in Isaiah 56 related to this particular topic of eunuchs. So Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 1. Thus says the Lord... Preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, and a name better than that of, the son, that, that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. And so we see here uh, in Isaiah 56, as 
uh, Isaiah is looking forward to the blessings of the new covenant, uh, what we see is that this uh, prohibition that we see here in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, of the exclusion of eunuchs from the assembly of the Lord, that as part of the new covenant, they will be included. And so we see physical circumcision moving to spiritual circumcision as part of the new covenant. And so this is the what we would call the expansion of the new covenant, even to eunuchs who were previously excluded under the Mosaic law. Uh, one final comment on verse 1, and then we'll move on. Um, Paul uh, most likely has this particular law in mind uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 12, when he's talking about the Judaizers. And the Judaizers who are demanding that the Gentiles be circumcised before they can come in and be part of the church. And so uh, Paul says multiple times in the book of Galatians that that those uh, Judaizers should be cut off. And he says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 12 that he wishes that they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. And so this is another way of Paul saying that those people, the Judaizers, who are demanding adherence to the law for... For inclusion in the new covenant uh, should be cut off from the churches in Galatia, and so uh, there are there are definitely hints of uh, Deuteronomy twenty three verse one uh, in the epistle to the Galatian churches as well. So a lot of a lot of things related there to that particular law in verse one. In verse two, uh, another category of persons uh, is uh, also excluded. Uh, from the assembly of the Lord, that would be those of illegitimate birth. Um, and so, again, a couple of things to say here. Uh, this could be a reference to uh, children of cult prostitutes. So, again, it may be tied uh, to pagan uh, religion. Uh, it may also just generally be tied uh, to uh, children who are born out of wedlock or in uh, violation of any of the sexual code uh, in the Mosaic Law. And again, I, I think the primary purpose here is to act as a deterrent. So uh, a man uh, who uh, chooses to engage in sexual relations with a woman outside of monogamous heterosexual covenantal marriage, uh, he... he the <coughs> The concern uh, that he should be thinking about in those moments is that if that sexual intimacy results in a child, uh, then his child, his progeny, uh, then will be excluded from the assembly of the Lord, which is uh, very much a, uh, something that an Israelite man uh, did not want to have happen uh, to his descendants. Alright, so as we're talking in verses 1 and 2 about those who uh, are excluded from the assembly of the Lord, then Moses here throws in a couple of additional laws about those who are to be excluded and also included in the assembly of the Lord. So verse 3, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. And so we see here that it is most likely that that uh, statement of the tenth generation uh, is most likely a euphemism for they shall never be included uh, in the assembly of Israel. Um, and I find and I and I read all the way down through verse eight because I wanted to contrast the Ammonites and the Moabites in verse three with the Edomites and the Egyptians in verse seven. 
So, in verse 3... Uh, all the way down through verse 6, you can see that the Ammonites and the Moabites are excluded forever from the assembly of Israel. But however, in verse 7, the Edomites and the Egyptians are allowed to be included in the third generation. So for example, if an Edomite came and wanted to join himself to the nation of Israel through circumcision, although the Edomites would probably have already been circumcised, but going through other rituals to become uh, Israelites, or even if an Egyptian chose to join himself to the nation Israel, then that Edomite or that Egyptian, their grandchild would have been allowed to become part of the assembly of Israel, whatever that means, as I see my previous discussion. But and, and that's extremely interesting to me because the reason it for in verse seven, for the fact that the Edomites are allowed to be included, at least the grandchildren of that Edomite who joins himself to, to Israel, right, is because the Edomites are brothers of Israel, right? So you know that the Edomites are descended from Esau, right, who is Jacob's brother. And so because Edom and the Edomites are related to the Israelites, God says that they can be included in the assembly of the Lord in the third generation. And then even the Egyptians, the ones who were persecuting, right, that the enslavement in Egypt, we know from the book of Exodus, was very difficult. But this reason is given. Because the Israelites were an alien in Egyptians' land, they will be allowed to be welcomed into the assembly as well. I think there's also, uh, as I was thinking about it, a tie perhaps to uh, Hagar, and Ishmael as well. But the point here is that you have Edom and Egypt who are allowed to come into the assembly of the Lord. And it's specifically in the case of the Edomites, it's because they are related to the Israelites. Now, why is that relevant? It's relevant to verse 3, right? So, you know that the Ammonites and the Moabites are also related to Israel. The Ammonites and the Moabites are related to Israel because they are the sons of Lot from Lot's daughters. So if you remember in Genesis chapter 19, as Lot and his wife and his two daughters are escaping Sodom and Gomorrah as the Lord is pouring out uh, brimstone, fire and brimstone on Sodom, right? So Lot and his wife and his two daughters are literally dragged out of the city by the angel of the Lord. As you know, Lot's wife turns back, and so she's immediately turned into a pillar of salt. But Lot and his two daughters, they escape towards Zoar, and they end up spending some time in a cave, just the three of them. And Lot's daughters, if you remember the story from Genesis 19, they get Lot uh, drunk, and they end up uh, having sexual relations with their father. And from those sexual relations in Genesis 19 come the Ammonites and the Moabites. So it's interesting here that the Ammonites and the Moabites are also related to Israel through their father Abraham. Now, we see in verses 3 through 6, however, the Ammonites and the Moabites are not welcome. They are not welcome in the assembly of Israel. Well, why is that? Well, the reasons given here in verse 4, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. And that is the key. That is the key. The reason why the Ammonites and the Moabites are not welcome 
But the Edomites and the Egyptians are welcome is because the Ammonites and the Moabites cursed Israel. And you can read about that in Numbers 22 through 25. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. The promises made to Abraham, specifically Genesis 12 verse 3. God says to Abraham, those who bless you I will bless and those who curse you I will curse. And because the Ammonites and the Moabites were involved in the cursing of Israel through Balaam, the son of Beor, God fulfills that promise to Abraham by never allowing the Ammonites or the Moabites to join the assembly of the Lord, even though they are related through as Lot's sons. So, just interesting there, and it ties together Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17, these first uh, uh, eight verses or so, and, and God's interactions with Abraham to determine who is and who is not acceptable inside the assembly of the Lord. Yes. Um, sorry to interrupt, but Ruth was a Moabite, and she is in the Davidic line because she gave birth to Obed. And so to say never, um, would that, I mean, it was to the 10th generation, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's actually... A, yeah, that's a really good comment. So, so... The, the Moabites, so this is why I would say probably some of the commentaries are, say, are arguing here that the males are in view, especially with regard to the leadership and the judges in Israel. So uh, Ruth, uh, being a Moabite woman, uh, would have been allowed to join herself uh, to Israel through marriage, right? Through the kinsman redeemer, uh, Boaz, right? So uh, when you... So yeah, it's it's a good it's a good point, um, and, but I so it may be that the the, the males are in view here uh, in verses one through eight. I appreciate the comment. It was a good comment. All right, in verse nine, I think that was all I had to say about that. Yeah, yeah verse nine. When you go out as an army against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If there is among you any man who is unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he must go outside the camp. He may not re-enter the camp, but it shall be when evening approaches. He shall bathe himself with water, and at sundown he may re-enter the camp. You shall also have a place outside the camp and go out there, and you shall have a spade among your tools. And it shall be when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and shall turn to cover up your excrement. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy. And he must not see anything indecent among you, lest he turn away from you. And so we have uh, a, a few verses here um, that are only, I would argue, cursorily tied, maybe to the second or the seventh commandment. So verse nine uh, clearly is related to uh, it's a it's a law about marriage and uh, someone um, who. So, in some sense, there's there um, cleanliness laws. I was thinking of a, of a later of a later verse, but you have these cleanliness laws, and so they'd be related to what is to happen inside the assembly or inside the camp, and what is to happen outside of the camp. And so you have uh, soldiers uh, in view here in verses nine through eleven. That as they're uh, getting ready for battle, uh, they are to remain clean. And if they're not clean, uh, then they're to go outside the camp uh, and perhaps not even go to battle. And then in verses 12 and 12, 12 through 14, you have this uh, additional 
um, cleanliness law, right? Uh, it's in, in some sense, it's it's pretty amazing. I think, uh, to me at least, uh, that the Lord in his in his cleanliness law uh, gets down to this level of detail. Uh, but of course, the reason why he does that, we see in verse fourteen, since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp, therefore your camp must be holy, and he must not see anything indecent among you, lest he turn away from you. And so. Um, this would, uh, in some sense, I, I read something in a commentary which uh, struck me, and this uh, certainly separates uh, human beings uh, from animals, right? This idea that God and his cleanliness laws, right? We, we are not to do as the animals do, but there are places that we ought to go uh, to make sure that our camp remains clean, especially in the case uh, of, of um, Israel, where God walks in their midst. Okay, verse 15. You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. So this is this is an interesting law, right? And um, in some sense you would think that a law like this would encourage uh, slaves and again, I'm not going to go through all of the, the slavery texts. We've been through that multiple times as we've gone through the Pentateuch. You know, we've looked at indentured servanthood. And uh, it may be here that um, the slave that's in view is uh, someone who comes from outside of Israel, right? So you have um, a slave, uh, let's say in Egypt, where the slaves obviously were not treated well. And they flee their master uh, and they come to Israel seeking refuge. Uh, which is certainly a reasonable thing uh, that might happen because Israel, God intended Israel to be a place of refuge. And uh, the Israelites are commanded not to uh, take that slave that runs to Israel for refuge and hand him back to his master. And the reason why, right, is, is because the Israelites, whether they have indentured servants themselves or, or slaves themselves, right, are commanded uh, at the end of verse 16, to be good masters. To be the kind of master that the slave does not want to flee from. Right? And you can see that again. We see that in multiple places, even in the New Testament, from both Paul and Peter. Right? When, when Paul and Peter are addressing masters and slaves uh, in their particular cultural context, uh, even in the context of the church, inside the Christian church, um, you would have exhortations to the masters to be good masters uh, of their slaves or of their servants. And uh, so uh, we, the Israelites are commanded here not to return those slaves that are fleeing uh, what is assumed to be here bad masters um, to not return them to their original owners but instead to function uh, in that slave's life as a place uh, of refuge it says in verse 16 he shall live with you in your midst in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him and you shall not mistreat him and the assumption there is that as his former master did and uh, there's a uh, I don't want to necessarily get into a long discussion of it tonight, but but uh, in the New Testament, of course, there's the short uh, letter of Paul to Philemon uh, that is the uh, the longest exposition of how how slaves ought to be treated uh, in the New Testament. So I think uh, that that would be uh, that would be good for for reading after after the study. Verse seventeen: None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. 
nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So we have a couple of verses here um, uh, on on pagan pagan um, religions, right? Again, related to uh, the seventh commandment, uh, because obviously these cult prostitutes were engaged uh, in in sexual worship as part of the pagan cult practices, and uh, both women and men could be engaged in those things. They, it was obviously um, something that was active at the time as part of the pagan religions that surrounded Israel and uh, was taking place in the land of Canaan among the people groups that uh, Israel was going to go in and displace. Right, And so here is a clear um, prohibition of those practices. God has already prescribed uh, in Exodus and Leviticus how he is to be worshipped. And at no time uh, in Exodus or Leviticus does God uh, prescribe uh, anything like male or female cult prostitution. Um, in the worship of him at the at the Israelite tabernacle, and so it is uh, clearly forbidden. And in fact, the fact that these two verses appear here in verses 17 and 18 uh, might be related back to what we were discussing in verses 1 and 2 of this same chapter. And then you see not only is the practice of cult prostitution forbidden, uh, but you also see in verse 18 that the wages of such uh, activity are not to be brought into the house uh, of the Lord their God, right? So, um, so not only do the people have to be holy, but it is also uh, necessary that the offerings must be holy, right? And and so we would think about whether if somebody uh, robbed a bank, for example, but then decided they were going to come in and tithe ten uh, percent of of what they had stolen. Uh, during the course of the night from a bank, right? This, in the same vein, would not be something that was honoring to God, right? Because there's clearly a violation of the law. And so God would see even that tithe uh, of that of that uh, booty that was taken uh, from, the, from the bank as an abomination to him. So the people must be holy and the offerings must be holy. Um, in verse 18, the word, the word uh, dog uh, is there. Um, again, I... I most commentaries be- believe that that's a reference to a, a, a male uh, cult prostitute. Um, you can see actually that same um, that same uh, language being used uh, in Revelation chapter 22, uh, verse 15. Um, and so uh, there's clearly um, uh, sodomy that is in view there. Okay, verse 19, so we'll just finish up with the chapter. Verse 19 through the end of the chapter, uh, we uh, begin to dive into a little bit of the Eighth Commandment, I believe. So, verse 19. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter to possess. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. 
When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. And so I think uh, these verses here are in the uh, the spirit, uh, as it were, of the eighth commandment. And so we would see that the Israelites charging interest of their um, fellow Israelites um, is forbidden in verse 19. I think this is a reminder to the Israelites that everything they have is God's, right? And it's been given to them uh, as a gift. And so because it's been freely given to them, it should be freely given uh, to their brothers in Israel. And so uh, interest among Israelites was forbidden. However, in verse 20, you see that uh, interest may be charged to someone who is not in Israel, all right, and so this would be as the Israelites, for example, uh, God makes them rich uh, because of their obedience, and the pagan nations, because of their idolatry around them, uh, fall into uh, some amount of poverty uh, by God's uh, ordination, right? And then they have to come to Israel. They have to come to Israel, which is a country which God has blessed because of their obedience. God then allows them uh, to to have a sense of superiority over the pagan nations around them and to charge them interest uh, in the hopes that the pagans would see uh, that Israel and their worship, primarily, obviously, their God is superior to the pagan gods. And, and, and what rings in my ears here is, is you have the exhortations in the New Testament that we ought to, as the church, we ought to do good to everyone, especially of those who are of the house, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so even in the, the New Covenant church, uh, we are to uh, do good to everyone, but we are to treat those who are inside uh, the church uh, with special blessing and special privileges. And uh, that's relatively clear uh, from the New Testament. And then this issue of vow taking uh, to the Lord, beginning in verse 21. So there's a warning in verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And so I think this is also uh, under the umbrella of the Eighth Commandment. In essence, uh, what you're doing when you make a vow to the Lord your God, which may or may not include uh, money, uh, what you're doing when you do not pay your vow is in essence you are stealing from God. Uh, you have made him a promise and now he will uh, surely require payment. And if you do not pay, then in essence you are stealing from him. But it's also very interesting, right, that in verse 22, that vows are not required, right? Um, those, those vows, uh, in verse 23, the word voluntarily is used, right? Just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. And again, so this is, we see there, there would be a deterrence effect, uh, with these particular laws, right? Anyone who makes a vow uh, should be serious about their vow. They should be uh, thinking hard about their vow uh, when they make it to the Lord their God, knowing uh, that God takes those vows uh, extremely seriously. And then finally, as we uh, finish up uh, Deuteronomy 23, 
this evening, the last couple of verses, uh, also under the umbrella of the Eighth Commandment. So when you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. Or when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. And so what we see here is that in the nation Israel, it is expected that uh, my field provides, at least occasionally, for your filling or your drinking. Right? And that is a manifestation, again, as I said just a few moments ago, that everything that the Israelites had was a gift given the, uh, them from Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And so they should hold those things uh, with loose hands uh, and they should uh, demonstrate kindness and hospitality to their fellow Israelites by allowing them to come and, and eat their fill. That is not stealing in the context of uh, Israel. However, if you go past the point where you are full or where I am full and now I begin to take things and put them in my basket or I use my sickle right, in my neighbor's grain so that I can fill my basket or fill my bag with uh, something that is beyond just providing for my needs today, that is the, that the Lord sees as stealing, and so we have this 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 balance between kindness and hospitality uh, on one hand uh, among uh, fellow Israelites, and not going too far as stealing would be going too far, uh, taking more than what you needed for the day, and so uh, that is uh, at least in this partic- these particular laws, this is stealing in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not going to dive into uh, Deuteronomy 24 tonight as we uh, get to the uh, certificates of divorce, Lord willing. We will pick that up uh, next time.